I could bring a grandkid and hang them on me if that if that's what we're doing now. If that's if that's a thing, let me know and I'll I'll grab one of them. Well, if you've been with us, uh, you know Tim's been on a sabbatical for a little while, and hope you've been praying for them that that's a restful and recharging time for them. Uh, before he left for that, he shot out an email to the folks on the teaching team saying, "All right, here's the Sundays, here's the passages." Um, that we need to cover. Why don't you, you know, take a look, pick out one you like. So give me your, your uh, input on the one you'd like to teach and maybe a, a backup in case that one's not available. So uh, apparently that input came in and then another email came out saying, well, it seems like everybody wants the same passages. And uh, so we're going to have to divvy this up. And uh, somehow in, in the way it all worked out, I got assigned this passage this morning, which means it wasn't my first choice, and apparently it was no one else's first choice. <laughs> so I feel a little like the guy in that army line when they ask for a volunteer, and you know you don't step forward, but everyone else takes a step back. So I'm, I'm feeling a little like that guy. But uh, we're going to go ahead and dive in. It's a, probably the reason it wasn't chosen. This is kind of a challenging passage. Is, um, you read it, and it's kind of hard to read. And you try to figure out what it means, and it's a little hard to figure out what it means. So it's just one of those passages that's a little challenging, but you know, in the easy to understand and in the hard to understand passages, there is truth that God put there because it will change our lives. So let's uh, pray and ask God to open our hearts to what he's got for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every word in your word. They were uh, divinely inspired, God-breathed, given to us as the words of God. So we thank you. We thank you for the easy-to-understand passages. We thank you for the hard-to-understand passages because we know that you're going to use both uh, to make us more like Christ. So, Father, would you open our hearts and our minds this morning that we might understand what you have to say for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, start with a little quiz this morning. Uh, raise your hand if you are a teacher. You are a professional teacher, trainer. Okay, see, we have a fairly good amount here. All right, put your hands down. Now I have a question for you teachers. <clears throat> How many of you in your teaching career have ever used a little tool that teachers sometimes used, and that tool is called a pop quiz? Let me know if you've ever given a pop quiz. Okay. All right, we've got, we got a couple in the front row here. So <clears throat> here, I'm going to pick on you guys. Why did you use a pop quiz? Get an idea where the students were, if they were paying attention, if they were tracking with you. Good. Anything else you'd add? Why, why would you use a pop quiz? Scare to scare them? <laughs> yeah. Get their attention. Let me ask you this question. What were you hoping to accomplish with your pop quiz? What, you know, what was the goal you were trying to achieve by surprising them like that and scaring them to death? What's that? Okay. It, uh, yeah, it, it helps them do a little bit of a self-assessment, doesn't it? Am I getting this? Oh, I thought I was getting it, but according to this quiz, I'm not getting it. Uh, it. It helps focus on the information that you're trying to focus them on in case they're confused on what's important here. So yeah, there's a variety of reasons why teachers use pop quizzes, but they do seem to help in terms of helping the kids understand what's important maybe helping them get a little more of an accurate self-assessment on how they're doing in those areas to see if they're tracking with you. 
Now, giving a pop quiz doesn't make you a bad person. Um, you know, you can have good motives. And in fact, Jesus also used that tool. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus gives a pop quiz to his disciples. This pop quiz was not an easy pop quiz. You know, sometimes you could give a pop quiz to make them feel good about themselves. You know, ah, oh, don't you see you're getting it? Good job. Well, this was not that, okay? Jesus gave a pop quiz that was not a warm, fuzzy pop quiz. This was hard. This was challenging. This really made you think. And it almost immediately divided the people who were following him. It says Jesus had large crowds following him. And so this very large, isn't it fun to be around Jesus crowd was around Jesus. And Jesus gave this quiz that immediately separated that big crowd into one of two groups. The ones who had been paying attention to what Jesus was saying and teaching and who were taking him seriously, and the other group, the, the part-time inspiration junkies there for the free food, the free blessings, their promotion of their personal agendas, uh, or just a little goofing off. Jesus' discipleship pop quiz consisted of three questions. And he used this pop quiz to teach those who were following him the things that were going to really be important and also to give them a chance to see uh, how they were tracking, to assess how they're doing in these rather important areas. So let's go ahead and take a look at the passage this morning and then we'll unpack it. We find ourselves in Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. And it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, well, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who observe it will ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and he wasn't able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while he's still far away, he sends a delegation, and he asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The first question on Jesus' discipleship pop quiz was the love question. How does love work? You notice in verse 25, it says large crowds were going along with him. How did Jesus respond to that? Was he excited? Did he say, hey, disciples, look how many people we got out today. This has got to be a personal best. I've never seen this many before. What a great crowd. Isn't it great how popular I'm becoming? He didn't respond like that. No, in fact, he kind of responded the other way. He looked at that large crowd, and, and he saw within that crowd both disciples and just some spiritual fans. And so he kind of turns to the crowd, and in essence, he looks at the crowd, and he says, um, 
what are some of you doing here? I think some of you are in the wrong spot. You see, Jesus looked at that crowd and he saw a whole lot of people, some of which had no intention of ever being fully devoted disciples of Christ, some people who had no idea of who he was or why he had come and didn't even seem to care. Maybe they were just people with their own ideas and agendas that kind of liked being around other people. So Jesus decides that it's time to ruffle some feathers, and he proceeds to do that. Jesus starts the pop quiz question with the love question. <clears throat> 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and sisters, and at this point, the crowd kind of goes, what? <laughs> did, he didn't just say that, did he? Sure, he must have misspoke. All right, take another run at it, Jesus. Surely you didn't, because it sounded like you just said, hate everybody. You, you didn't mean that, did you? They're confused. Now, here's where I'm supposed to say, you know, the Greek word for hate actually means love and adore. <laughs> yeah, that's not true at all, okay? That's not true at all. It confuses us today, and it confused them. I mean, you can see them all looking at each other with puzzled looks going, uh, I don't think I get this. Um, I don't know what's going on here. Hate my parents? Hate my wife? Hate my kids? Jesus is telling me to do that? And then they start to try to figure it out. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure in Exodus 20, like the fifth commandment, had something to say like, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, they didn't have the New Testament, but we do today. So when we read it, we kind of go, hate my wife? Really? I kind of thought Ephesians 5.20 said, 5.25 says, husbands love your wives. Hate my children? I thought Ephesians 6.4 said, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I, I was under the impression I was to love them and nurture them and protect them. So what's going on here? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Did Jesus misspeak? Of course, the answer is no. Jesus was using the word hate, not in an absolute sense, but in a relative or comparative sense. Context always matters in correct interpretation. Remember what Jesus is looking to do in this moment of his teaching. Jesus was making a point that true disciples would understand. And it was a point about the priorities, the order, and the sequence of this thing we call love. You see, before the fifth commandment came the first commandment. And the first commandment in Exodus 22 said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Deuteronomy 6.4 would say it this way, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice the order that Jesus put those in. Number one. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Number two, you love your neighbor as yourself. 
Disciples love God first and then love others. And to switch that order might seem like a small or insignificant thing, but actually it's a big deal. It's the difference between discipleship and idolatry. Idolatry is taking a thing, anything, even a good thing, but taking a thing and trying to make it a God thing. And that is the point of verse 26 when he uses the word hate. This is a warning about idolatry, about taking a good thing and trying to make it a God thing. So it's a comparative use of the word contrasting it with the primacy of knowing and loving God. It's a warning to avoid the idolatry of trying to put other people in the place in your life that only God can fit. You see, you were built and designed to know and to love God. And nothing else can take his place in your life, not even good things, not even good things like family or other people you care about. And if we try to make that faulty substitution, then we are insulting the God who created us, loved us, and died for us, and you're also setting that other relationship up for failure. Because if you try to put another person in the place that only God belongs in your life, then eventually you will expect them to provide for you the things that only God can provide for you. And when they cannot deliver on your God-sized expectations of them, the relationship begins to unravel. And what started off as love can erode into anger and frustration and hatred and bitterness. You see, only God can be God in our lives. We cannot successfully substitute people for them. That's the point of this question. 1 John 4, 8 through 11 kind of explains more fully how this concept of love works. It says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we really ought also to love one another. A couple observations from that passage. Number one, love originates with God, not us. It originates with God, and it flows to us through Christ. And as it flows to us through Christ, we respond to God by loving him back. And we set up this vertical flow of love. God is loving us and we're loving him back. I call it tier one love. We get connected to the God of the universe who loves us. Now after you get that tier one love connected, we are now experiencing God's love to us and in us. We're now equipped and empowered to love others generously because we're connected to the source. And because we're connected to the source, we get this tier two love going where we start to love others. And we can love them better because we're connected to the source of love. When we love others, being connected to God's love, we can take his unconditional love to us and we can flow it to the people around us. It goes right through us to them. We can love better when we're connected to God's love. If I try to love others and I am not connected to God's love, well then, God's not the source of my love. I am the source of my love. And if I am the source of my love, 
It's not unconditional. <laughs> you see, when I, you try to love others, but you're not connected to God's love, it's not unconditional love. It tends, even with the best of intentions, to be nothing more than a transactional love. Because I'm the source, so we got limited resources. So this transactional love says, I will love you, but I need you to love me back now, okay? So I'll flow some love to you, but I need to have that love flowing back. I need a transaction here. I don't, I don't have unlimited resources. So when we try to love tier two, others, but we're not connected to God, the problem is we've got a bad source. Our source is insufficient to really love other people well. And that's the problem. So First John tells us this is how love works, which is kind of the point of this first question. First, you love God. You get connected there, tier one, and then you have the resources to love other people well. You know, we might think if we thought shallowly of this, well, if I make my wife the most important person in my life, then that's the best way to love her. No, actually it's not. Because if I'm doing that, I can only love her with my resources. And those are limited. But if I get connected to God, like 1 John 4, 8 through 11 says, then I have the unlimited resources of my loving Heavenly Father flowing to me fresh every morning, refilling my bucket every day. I can love her better if I'm loving God. So it was the love test. And he was kind of making the point here that if you really want to love other people well, you've got to understand that you love God first. The, answer, the correct answer to the quiz question number one was what Jesus said in Matthew 22. This is how it works. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. In the seconds like it, love your neighbors as yourself. All right, on to question two on the pop quiz. The second question on the discipleship test was the purpose test. What are you supposed to do with your life? Verse 27, it says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the purpose test. What are you supposed to do with your life? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in, is in Christ, therefore, if you've made a decision to believe in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. For the believer in the game of life, you have two halves. You have the first half of life, which was before Christ. You have the second half of life, which is after Christ. And at this point, we're turning our attention to what is the game plan for the second half. Now that Christ is my Savior, what am I supposed to do with my life? In verse 27, it says that the answer to that is take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus had a mission when he came to this world. He had an assignment from the Father to provide the way of salvation for all of mankind. Now that assignment led him to a literal cross on an actual hill on an actual day where he paid the price for the sins of the world. And just like Jesus had an assignment from the Father when he was in the world, you and I, you and I also have an assignment from the Father while we are in the world. And it's our job to figure out what that assignment is and to get about the business of doing it. Jesus' cross was a literal cross. Now, most likely God is not needing us to literally die on a cross because he accomplished everything he needed to when he did that. 
But Jesus calls us to follow his lead and example of being fully dedicated to the assignments God the Father has given to us and being willing to walk the path of loving, sacrificial service for the glory of God, just like Jesus did. Jesus counted the cost to the cross, and he said yes to obedience. And he says, we need to do the same thing. In verse 28, it asks, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? Now, why did Jesus say yes to a path that had the cost of hardship and sacrifice that was sitting in front of him? Well, in Hebrews 12, too, it answers that question by saying, looking at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So, that raises the question, what was the joy set before him that got him through the cross? What did Jesus not have before the cross that he had after the cross that brought him joy? I mean, before the cross, he was the second member of the Godhead. He was God. He was in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He was totally complete. He lacked nothing. He was the Alpha and Omega. So what is this future thing that he was looking forward to that would bring him joy? And the answer is it was us with him in heaven. Allow that to kind of explode your brain for a moment. That was the joy. For the joy of having us with him in heaven, it says Jesus looked through the hardship to Friday to the joy of Sunday. He looked through the suffering of the cross for the joy of bringing us to heaven. And he says, if you're my disciples, carry your cross. Figure out what your assignment is. Figure out what your ministry is and say yes in obedience to it and say no to the world's meaningless little distractions. And when things get hard, because sometimes they will, be like Jesus. Look through the hardship, look through the challenges, look through the temporary costs to see the forever joy set before you, to see the eternal rewards and glory that will happen when you run your God-assigned race to the glory of God. So take up your cross, get dialed in to your spiritual gifts, to your ministry passions, to your assignments. Count the cost and run with endurance the race set before you. So the correct answer to the second question on this quiz, what are you supposed to do with your life, could be answered in verses like Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or it might be answered with a Romans 12, 1 and 2 that says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's saying there, just present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice. And what does it mean to be a living and holy sacrifice? Well, it means you're on the altar, it means you're available, it means you're surrendered. You say, I'm here, I'm available. Go ahead, God, do what you want to do. I'm yours. Well, the third question on this discipleship test was the possession question, and that is, who owns your stuff? Verse 33, so then, 
None of you can be my disciples who's not, who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, much like the first question, this one kind of stops you in your tracks a little. And you go, wait, give up all? All right, please tell me the Greek word for all means a little bit. You know, doesn't. Kind of means all. Let's take, let's take a quick survey here this morning. How many people in the room have done this? You've, uh, you woke up one morning and you gave everything you own away. Gave away the house, gave away the cars, gave away the clothes, gave away your tennis racket and your golf clubs, gave, gave the shirt off your back and every dollar in your wallet. Uh, quick show of hands. Okay, not a lot of participation on that one. Uh, so what does this verse mean? Does it mean here that, that now that we've read this, that we're supposed to go home and do this, that you know we should go home this afternoon and find a church, a charity, or some needy people uh, to give everything we own to? Does, does this verse mean that if we don't do this this afternoon, we should not show up next week calling ourselves disciples of Christ? What's going on here? Well, much like the verse above about hating your parents was used to illustrate the priorities of love and the flow of love, this verse starts by capturing our attention and then leads us to a very important biblical principle that's often called the principle of stewardship. The verb translated give up in verse 33 is not referencing a single one-time event. It's not like Randy went home on the afternoon of November 14th at 2.31 on 2021 and he gave away all his possessions. It's not a one-time event. This verb is in the present tense, which indicates this thing he's talking about is a continual, ongoing action. So whatever this is, this is something we're supposed to be doing every day. And just like earlier, we said sometimes people could become idols for us. This verse is saying it's also true that sometimes things or our possessions can become idols for us. So this is a warning not to allow your stuff to become an idol that might displace God from the throne of your life. So it's saying don't think about your stuff as your stuff. Think about it a different way. Consider God the owner and then manage those resources in a way that honors God. Now, how do you do that? What am I supposed to do then with my money? Well, number one, use it to live to take care of your family. 1 Timothy 5.8 said, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of, the house, of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So be a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted you with and take care of your family. And I'd just say, if, if this has been a problem area, if like managing money and finances and meeting family needs and figuring out the difference between needs and wants and desires and all that stuff. If, if this has been an area marked more by chaos than by peace in your life, I'm going to make a, a suggestion to you this morning. Pick up a, a copy of Dave Ramsey's book, Total Money Makeover. Read it and start to just practice the principles. This is a, a Christian guy who's just studied the Word and found a lot of biblical principles on how you, you be a good steward of God's resources. And he put it in an easy-to-understand form. It's helped a lot of people. So if this is an area of chaos in your life, it doesn't have to be. There are biblical principles, and when we follow those, it can be an area that, that brings peace and joy to our lives. So uh, if you need that, you know, go ahead and pursue that little resource there. So we're going to use it to take care of our family needs. Uh, we can also use our money to give, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 
And it says, give cheerfully. Each one of you must do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This test is about choosing to be a giving steward instead of a hoarding owner. You can give to your local church, you can give to organizations that do good work, you can give to individuals, you can give to families, you can give your time, you can give your talent, you can give your possessions. You know, it might even just occur to you one day that you have something and you know someone who needs that a whole lot more than you do, so you just think, I should just give this to them. Now, owners don't think like that. But, you know, stewards would think like that. They'd think, you know, I know of a need here, and I've got it, and I, I could just give it to them. It's God's stuff. And I think maybe they need a blessing right now. So maybe I'll do that. Stewards would think like that. So the correct answer to this third question on the discipleship pop quiz, who owns your stuff, is God does. And he's given it to us to manage. And I am the steward. Luke 12, 42 talks about this when it says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he'll be put in charge of all his possessions. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Well, in verse 34, Jesus says, therefore. And I think the crowd breathed a sigh of relief. Good, I think the quiz is over. This has been hard. <laughs> so the, the crowd goes, good, it's done. Jesus switches gears, therefore. All right, the quiz is over. Jesus now turns his attention to explaining to his followers why what he just said was important for them to both understand and to act on. In verse 34, he says, Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless. In a meal, salt is not the main course. I would doubt if any of you have ever gone out for lunch and ordered a bowl of salt. I would hope none of you have gone out for lunch and ordered a bowl of salt. I mean, not only is it not the main dish, it's not even a side dish. You know, you don't go somewhere and say, give me the ribeye steak and I'll take a side of salt with that. You know, you don't do that. Salt is actually a very small percentage of the meal. Maybe a couple shakes on your potatoes or a teaspoon, teaspoon or tablespoon, tablespoon or recipe somewhere, but, but it's a small amount. It's a small contribution, but that small contribution makes a difference, doesn't it? It influences the outcome of the dish. It seasons the dish. It can take something bland and make it taste good. And in this post-quiz summary, Jesus is bringing it all together by explaining that his disciples, number one, love God first, then love others with the love of God. They, too... They live with a sense of purpose. They live intentionally. They take up their cross. They follow me. And number three, they see themselves as stewards and as let God be the owner. And they use their resources to live and to give. And as a result of living like that, in verse 34, he says, therefore, Jesus says it's going to make you kind of salty when you live like that. You're going to be salty. 
Your life is going to have a positive, inspirational impact on others. You will then be the salt that seasons the food. You will be the tree that bears fruit. Jesus says, follow me, and your life will be meaningful instead of meaningless. It, would be, it will be useful instead of useless. It will be productive instead of unproductive. It will be full instead of empty. You're going to have a positive impact on those around you. You're going to season and enrich your family and your friendships and your workplace and your neighborhood and your city and your country and your world. Just like salt seasons and flavors the things it touches, Jesus said, if you're my disciples, if you're going to follow my path here of, of living in love and with purpose and with stewardship, then you will season and flavor the things you touch in your life, the people, the places, the experiences. Jesus makes exactly the same point with a different word picture in John 15, 8, where he explains what happens in the lives of his disciples another way. He says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus' pop quiz 2,000 years ago was designed to help his followers understand and embrace what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And the Spirit of God led Luke to record that so that we could take the same quiz today. So how'd you do on the quiz? How'd you answer the three questions? Now let's remember what a pop quiz is for. It's not designed to make you feel bad about yourself. It's not designed to make you feel like a failure or to discourage you. It's not designed to cause you to go out and make a great big to-do list to start working on. The purpose of a pop quiz is to inform you and to remind you about the things that are really important, the things that are going to be on the real test of life. The purpose of the pop quiz is to help you get an honest and accurate assessment of how you're doing, where you're at with it. And a better, so that you can better prepare to succeed in the real test of life. You know, I think this would be a great passage to sit down and discuss and unpack with some brothers and sisters in Christ that you're walking with. Remember two weeks ago we talked about this area of discipleship. Don't walk this path alone. Have some Pauls in your life that you're learning from. Have some Timothys in your life that you're helping along, building up. From this passage, I just see a ton of diagnostic discipleship questions that would be worth sitting down and just talking through. Is my heart an idol-free zone? Is there anywhere in my life I'm taking a good thing and making it a God thing? Am I loving the way God's designed to love, or am I trying to kind of just do it on my own? What am I doing to develop my tier one relationship, my love relationship with God? How am I doing at loving others? and allowing God's love to flow through me? Or here might be a good question. Who am I having trouble loving? And why am I having trouble loving him if God's love is throwing, flowing to me? Am I understanding and embracing God's purpose for my life? Am I discovering my gifting, my ministry passions, and finding a place to serve God with those? Am I living intentionally, or am I just kind of wandering through life? Am I holding my possessions, you know, with an open hand, considering myself as a steward of God's resources, striving to be faithful? Or am I holding my possessions with closed hands, trying to protect my little kingdom, make sure nobody steals anything from me? If I call myself a disciple of Christ, are there any signs of saltiness in my life? Are there any signs of fruit that would indicate that I am a child of God? 
Now, don't get me wrong here. It's not our job to produce fruit. God does that. But more than once in the New Testament, Jesus said, guys, if it's an apple tree, we should see some apples under it. I'd like to encourage you to take some of these questions or maybe your own questions and just have some great conversations with this week with some people uh, that you walk with. Get with your people and explore this truth. And if you don't have people, get yourself some people. Ask someone to disciple you. Join a discipleship group. We've got men's and women's groups going here. Or if you don't see one you want to join, start one. Get a few other people and just get going at it. Join a small group. Jesus said, guys, it's really not that complicated. My disciples, number one, understand how love works, so they love the Lord their God with all of their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind, and then they love their neighbors as themselves. They live with purpose. They take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. They figure out what their assignment is, what their ministry is, and they say yes to obedience to it. They get dialed into their spiritual gifts, their ministry passions, their assignment. They count the cost, and they run with endurance the race set before them. They see themselves as stewards of God's love and resources, which leads them to live and to give accordingly. And when we as disciples walk this path, Jesus said that he's laid out for us, an amazing thing happens. The Father is glorified, and our lives bear fruit. Now let me ask, so this is kind of a big passage, it's kind of a heavy passage, a little challenging passage. How are we as Christians supposed to respond to a teaching like this, to words like this? I would just say, please don't respond by making a big to-do list. If you do that, you've missed the point. This is not a moral code that we're supposed to try harder to live up to. Christianity is not some kind of performance-based self-improvement plan. Christianity is a life flowing out of the grace and mercy and love of God. Sanctification is a spirit-empowered and a spirit-guided journey. Chip Ingram, in his Right Now Media series on true spirituality, makes this statement. True spirituality has nothing to do with living a good life so that God will love you. True spirituality has everything to do with beginning to grasp the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of how much God has already loved you and has demonstrated that love and you living out of the freedom of that love. So what does God want from us? Well, according to Romans 12, he wants us to be a living sacrifice. And that means being on the altar, that means being surrendered, that means being available. And when we put our lives in that position, when we choose the harder but better way, then God will be faithful to take the lead and make us who we need to be and lead us where we need to go and enable us to do the things we need to do as beloved, chosen children of God.